How's everybody doing tonight? Good? All right. Wonderful. Well, tonight we are going to talk about the very first emotion that is ascribed to God in the Bible. Can anyone guess if if you didn't if you if you can't think back to last week when I sort of maybe, you know, pointed ahead and played, uh, you know, showed my hand on this. Anybody guess what the very first emotion that is explicitly ascribed to God in the Bible is? It's not happiness. I did one time when I asked that question, teaching this before, somebody was like, well, you know, Genesis chapter one, you know, he says everything is good. Yeah, he says things are good, but the Bible doesn't explicitly say he was happy with it. He was happy. Later on, you find out that, you know, he created out of happiness, all of that. But as if you were reading through the narrative, the first time that you find out that God is an actually emotional God, what do you what what do you think? Anger? No, not at all. Anger doesn't show up until fifty-four chapters in. This one's only six chapters in. If that gives a hint away. Sadness. Grief. Exactly. The first time we hear that God... The first time we hear in the Bible, if you're reading through the narrative, that God is an emotional God, that He is a, he's a, he is a being. He's not just some far-off, distant deity who doesn't intimately care about His creatures. We see His broken heart. And that's in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I love teaching this lesson because a couple of reasons. One, it's about the weirdest passage in the entire Bible. And so we get to talk about some weird stuff. But also, uh, this is just a really important instance for the entire idea of emotions. So, in the, for a whole, the whole idea of a biblical theology of emotions. So, if you got your Bible, Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and after, also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a mouthful of a sentence and it says a world, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man 
whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So, you know, if you remember from the first week, uh, we talked about this sort of pattern in emotions. How do they work, right? There's something outside of us. We see it. We make an evaluation. So there's a stimulus. There's perception on our part. We see it. And then there's an evaluation that we make in our heads. Then that evaluation leads to an internal experience that's then meant to motivate action. Now, where do I get that pattern? I didn't just pull it out of thin air. I didn't pull it out of psychology. I pulled it out of Genesis 6. This is exactly what happens with God, right? He sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He looks outside of himself. He looks down at the world that he's made and he sees the wickedness of humanity. He sees that every intention of their heart is only evil continually. And he makes an evaluation. He regretted that he had made man on the earth. He evaluates and he says, this is a regretful thing. It's actually the word, the word for regret there. Uh, every translator is really timid about what to do with this word. So you get words like regret. Uh, it's the word for repent. It's the same word that God would apply to us if he were to say you need to repent of your sins. He repented that he made man on the earth. He turned, he decided, he made an evaluation. This is not a good thing that has come about within my creation. Now, I, th I think we rightly kind of back off from that idea that God is repenting. Because when we say he's, when we, when we mean repenting for us, we mean we're turning away from sin. God has no sin, but there's this thing, there's this regrettable situation. He evaluates and he regrets it. And then what happens? His regret over the evil that has come out of humanity grieves him to his heart. Doesn't just grieve him. Now, this, you, you can use the word for grief and mean, you know, regular grief. He felt sad. But the Hebrew doubles down on here. It grieved him to the very core of himself. That's his emotional experience. So then what does he do? He makes, he, he, it motivates his grief and regret, motivates him towards an action, towards two actions. So Yahweh said, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. I am putting an end to this. But then it motivates a second action. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Because he's a real good dude. He's a real good guy. Now, I mean, it does say he was outstanding in his generation. His generation, you know, that is, uh, but that's sort of like saying, um, this is the, you know, <laughs> 
Can't think of a bad. I think of a good analogy coming off with the top of my head. Uh, this is the most limber um, quadriplegic I've ever seen. You know, the, like these people are the people. The, listen to the evaluation that he just made. These people are completely broken as human beings. And then he goes, but this one finds favor because he's blameless in his generation. He stands out as righteous. Now, what made Noah righteous? Was it just his own gumption, his own ability, his own strength? No, he finds favor. That word, that idea is that he, God has shed his grace upon him. The idea when the Lord shows favor to someone, he, is, he, does, not, he does not look at someone who is worthy and say, I'm going to give them the favor that they're worthy of. He looks at the unworthy and says, I choose to show favor to them. He's looking at him through the lens, with, you know, later of Christ. So, he makes these two decisions. He's going to blot everything out, and he's going to deliver Noah and a remnant, and he's going to keep his promises. So, a couple of things uh, that I want to hit in this passage. I want to talk about what grief is. And I want to talk about the things that grieve God in this passage and then beyond. But first, I want to take a minute and I, I, kind, of, I kind of pack this into this part of the lesson because uh, I think it fits well here. Because here's the thing. The word grief in the Hebrew means literally a wound. A wound. But it's metaphorically applied to your emotional state because grief is the response to a to a wound. Grief is the response to a loss in yourself or in the things around you. Grief is when you when you're looking at your at the world around you and you evaluate that you've lost something that is of vital importance to you. It's not just that you feel sad because you didn't get to. Uh, you know, go to the ball game, or you didn't get to do this, you can do that. It's that something vital to your existence, something vitally important to you, has been lost. And, it's, and the, only thing, the only idea that the words can get at to communicate what that is like, it's like when you get stabbed, you know. Maybe you don't know. <laughs> It's, I mean, that's the idea, is that it, is, it pierces. It's a wound. And so what's the action that grief is meant to motivate? Grief is meant to motivate this action of, let me step back. When you get wounded, has anybody ever been stabbed before? I was, um, I got a funny story. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up way out in the country. And we had these two barns on our property. And me and my 18 cousins, who were all males except for two, it was like Lord of the Flies growing up. Uh, we used to play games with tobacco sticks. You ever seen a tobacco stick? You hang tobacco on it in a tobacco barn, but you fight with them like they're swords. You know, break one in half. You've got weapons, your Donatello, whatever. Um, and we had, you know, one barn was one base and another barn was another. And so my cousins invade our barn and I, we're fighting, doom, 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 and I'm stepping back and... In my mind, I am just straight up like uh, Luke Skywalker or something. You know, ah, yes, this is amazing. And I step through a hole in the floor. Whew. 
and fall from the second story of the barn down in the first floor and fell on a pile of hay. Lucky for me, I fell on a pile of hay, nice and comfortable. Unlucky for me, there was a pitchfork in it. And and it pierced my side. The the tines went into my side. Three of them went in. And I remember having this pitchfork stuck in my side and going, oh, wow. I, I mean, I'm like eight years old, so I was certain I was about to die. And my brother, who uh, my older brother comes down and he goes, ah, you know, screams and grabs it and, and pulls it out, which was the worse. Um, and so what, what happened? I passed out like I just went. I, was, I don't I, what I remember next is waking up on my grandmother's couch. She lives on the same property. She's the closest house to us. I remember waking up on her couch with a you know, glass of water and. Um, they didn't splash it on me or anything. I'm sure my brothers would have wanted to. Um, but that's what, that wound, what was my body's reaction to that wound? Why did I pass out? My body was reacting to a wound. All of a sudden, in my mind, I saw this wound and I evaluated in my mind, oh man, this is really severe, I might die. And so what does my body do? It says, all right, shut off everything. We've got to pull back and we've got to focus on making sure that we don't die and and take care of this wound. That's what grief is meant to do for us emotionally. When you feel grief over something, that is God calling you to take a step back and evaluate. Think about what you've lost. Think about this. What is it that is leaving? What is it that you've lost that has left this gaping wound in your life? And how can you pull back and spend time and take the time to heal and recover? That's what God is doing. He sees this wound on his earth. He sees this wound in the world that he's made. He sees it covered in bloodshed. You see these great war chiefs we see in the passage. They are called, they call them the Nephilim. And this is the weirdness of the passage, right? Nephilim, giants on the earth, that who are the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and having children with them, and they're having these uh, giant warlords who are shedding blood. Well, what we find out is, here, here's, what, here's my summary. There's three different kinds of uh, arguments that people make about this passage. One, it's like angels, and they're actually like angels mating with, you know, uh, with human women and creating supernatural offspring. I don't really buy that one. Uh, Jesus tells us that uh, spiritual beings don't reproduce. Uh, And so I don't think that by falling away from God and rebelling against him, that devils suddenly got the uh, ability to reproduce. But the other argument is that it's just a way of referring to sort of war chiefs and and, uh, warlords. But I don't buy that either because this language of the sons of God is only ever applied to spiritual beings. So here's what I think is going on. What we have here is the first instance of something like demonic possession. Where demons, spiritual beings, rebellious, evil spiritual beings are in league with rebellious humans. And together they have begun to... uh, oppress and destroy God's world and cover it in blood. That idea, the idea, bless you, the idea is, you know, uh, that bloodshed, blood is, the idea is that God looks down 
Remember when Cain killed Abel? What does God come down and say? His blood's crying out to me from the ground. Between then and now, what has happened? Bloodshed, 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 bloodshed. And the cry, the, the, the image is that the cry of all that unjustly shed blood is screaming in God's ears. So why does he flood the earth? Why does he choose a flood? Because he's going to wash it clean. He's going to go back. He's decreating. What was the order of creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. I don't like that translation, but we can't get into that now. The earth was wild and waste. The earth was uninhabitable and uninhabited. And darkness covered the face of the deep waters. And the Spirit hovered over the waters. There's the, the, the picture of the world before God brings it into order is a world covered in water. And so God is saying, I am going back to the beginning. I'm going to start over. He's backing off in his grief so that he and his world can recover. Now, Theologians will tell you that God cannot be harmed. He cannot be wounded. And that is true from one perspective. But I have to be faithful to the text. God cannot be wounded or diminished unless he chooses to let something hurt him, harm him. And the way we need to think about this, this idea that God is unchangeable and yet he feels emotion that's, that our, our, our sins actually grieve him. The way we need to connect these two ideas, there's this idea, it's observational language. You know what I mean by observational language? So, uh, what happened around 6, I think it was, I, I looked it up last time I did this, but it was around 6.41 in the morning. Something happened this morning in, in, in Birmingham, Alabama. The sun rose, right? The sun rose. That's what it does, right? No, you're wrong. The sun does not rise. The sun does not go up in the sky. We are revolving around it. But we do not say that at 6.41 this morning, the earth reached rotational alignment so that the light of the sun uh, came up over the horizon and hit us here in Birmingham, Alabama. That's not what we say. We speak from our point of observation. We speak from our point of view and we say the sun rose. So when we talk about God grieving, when we talk about God being wounded in in his emotional state by our sin... We are talking about it in the way that we talk about the sunrise. It's observational language. God doesn't change. We're rotating around him. And as different things pass into the unchanging light of his character, those things experience God differently based on their relationship to him. So over sin and rebellion, we can say when, when people sin and rebel, one way you can, if you want to say it from the observational perspective, you say God grieves over their sin. But if you want to look at it from like the astrological perspective, that's wrong. Astrological is like with uh, signs or something, right? Like Pisces. Uh, 
astronomical? That's probably better. Uh, from, the, from, the, from the non-observational perspective, we say that God is choosing to identify with the grief of His people. He is choosing to let the grievous actions of His creatures wound Him. This is not the first time that He... This is not the last time that He will do that. So, grief. The Hebrew word is atzav. It means wound. And then it's uh, metaphorically then applied from physical pain to emotional pain and into combinations of the two. So what is, that is what grief is. It's an emotional wound. So what is grief meant to do? Remember our three things that every emotion is supposed to do. It's supposed to communicate something to us. It's supposed to motivate action and it's supposed to connect us to something. It's supposed to connect us to God and one another. What is, how does sadness communicate about the deepest loves of our hearts? C.S. Lewis says, God speaks to us. God whispers to us in our joys. In the moments of your happiness, in the moments when things are going really well, God can whisper. God whispers to you in those things. But in your grief, in your grief, God shouts. A wound is unignorable. You might be able to ignore a rock in your shoe, but if I stab you in the kidney, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to ignore it, right? A wound is unignorable. And... So it's meant to communicate to us that we have lost something that we consider very vital. Now, this is for next week, and we'll get more into it, how to evaluate whether you are grieving over the right things or not. Because remember, emotions in themselves are not good things or bad things. They point us towards good and towards evil. It's what we do with them that's good or bad. But what they're meant to do is sort of reveal the deepest loves of your heart. So if I'm more grieved over the loss of my... If I was in a car crash and my, my family was injured in a car crash that I was driving, and I was more grieved over the loss of my car than my kids, what would that show you about my heart? Then I'm evil, right? They would show you that I'm evil, I'm selfish, I'm greedy, that I, I, I'm concerned more about my image and, my, and my, comfort, my comfort than I am with my own family. So these things, grief communicates. It is this prime opportunity for sanctification. Do not, do not waste your grief. Grief is one of the easiest things to waste because we want to get out of it. We want to escape. We want to just pass out. But those moments of grief, that is your opportunity to deeply evaluate the loves of your heart. Find sin that will lie hidden and dormant during long periods of your life. Identify those things and be able to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, root them out. Don't waste your grief. Don't waste your sadness. Second, grief and sadness are meant to motivate. They're meant to motivate us to pull back from acting too quickly. 
What happens when you act too quickly uh, in in a situation where someone is injured or wounded? What happened when my brother pulled that pitchfork out of my side? Is that what the paramedics would have recommended? As a former paramedic, no, it is not. When you are impaled with an object, you leave that in because it stops the blood. But, but in that emergency mode of thinking, in that freaking out about a wound, what do we do? We, we go, ah, and we just do the first thing. We act foolishly. We act quickly. Never make a decision. Never make big decisions while, you are in the, while you're in a mode of grief. Because you're, you're make, you're probably making those decisions to escape. Grief is meant to make you step back. Step back. Go to the hospital. <laughs> Wounds are meant to make you step back and look for help. Somebody who can patch you up. And that's true of grief too. You need to have people in your life to whom you can go, who can help you in those moments of grief and sadness. It's meant to give you time and opportunity to heal the wounds before you just go leaping blindly into the next great loss in response to a great loss. It's a protective thing. It's a gift of God that he's given us this to protect us. Third, sadness is meant to connect us to one another as a community wounded with the wounds of the individual. Paul tells us in Romans twelve fifteen to mourn with those who mourn. Like I said earlier, the feeling, you know, what's true about with us and God that in our happiness, he whispers and he gre- in, our gr- in our grief, he screams, uh, is true in our relationships with each other, right? If all emotions are meant to connect us to one another, if somebody else experiences something really joyful, the birth of a child, you feel deeply connected to them in that moment. But what about the loss of a child? There's an opportunity there. It's a terrible thing, a grievous thing. It's a wound. But what God has designed us for in those moments of grief, He's given you an opportunity to staunch somebody else's wound, to put your hands on that wound to help stop the bleeding. And that connects people in a a deeper way than, than any other emotion has the potential to. We are connected at the point of our grief more than by any other emotion. So another way we can waste our grief is we see somebody else grieving and we do this thing, we go... Uh, I, I bet everyone in here has sent this text message or this message to somebody at some point in their life, or you will. Somebody's in a really grievous situation, and what do you say? You say, let me know if you need anything. All right? I've done it. I did it the other day. I did it like three days ago. Let me know if you need anything. I'm wasting that opportunity. Because what's somebody in their grief going to say? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. They're never going to tell you what they actually need. So what do you do? You need to actively pursue them. Actively move towards the wounded people in your lives. You see somebody in grief, don't run away, move towards them. We are, we are the field medics for one another when it comes to grief and sadness. Christ, obviously, 
We share one another's burdens. This is Galatians 6, 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what that means? Christ is a law. The law of Christ. His actions, his life, what he did becomes a law, a mandate for us. And what is that mandate? Bear one another's burdens. Don't wait. That's in the context of a passage that says, if you see your brother caught in any sin, if you see your brother, uh, the idea is you're walking along a trail and your brother has this bear trap clapped on his leg. You see your brother in that situation, don't go, call me if you need anything. Let me know if you need anything. I'll, I'll see you later. They need something. You see their need. Move towards them. And, and, remove, and, and remove that trap. Pull them out of the sin. Pull them out of the grief. Pull them out. Be with them in it. Get really close. To bear somebody's burden, what do you have to do? Let's say you're getting on an airplane and there's a, there's a 95-year-old woman on that airplane. And she's, you know, she's fit for 95. But she's got a big suitcase and she's putting it in the overhead compartment. How do you bear her burden? She can't really lift it. Do you just kind of... You can't do it from far away, can you? You have to go get right next to her. You have to get almost like in her shoes. You have to get really close and you have to stand up and put the weight of her burden on you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. This is how he becomes a law, a mandate for us to do this. Because what does he do? He sees us, God sees us in a, in a self-destructive flood of blood in his good world. And he doesn't stand off far and aloof and say, call me if you need anything. He moves with urgency to cleanse the evil and to make a way for grace to flourish in the world through Noah. And that leads to Christ who, does, who leaves heaven, who leaves his comfort, who leaves his joy, who leaves his happiness. Says, happiness is not happiness if I can't have it with them. In the song we sang, he didn't want heaven without us. I believe that 100%. He designed heaven and earth to be a place where he and humanity could live together as partners and we could experience the, the full enjoyment and glorifying of him beyond our wildest imagination. And we have abandoned that for our sin. And that grieves him. And it so grieves him and moves him that he comes in Isaiah 53 says what? Surely he is born... Our griefs. We considered him stricken and afflicted, marred beyond the semblance of a man, it says. So marred. God, when God, when we could finally get our hands on God, what do we do? We do exactly what they did in Genesis 6. We wound him. We strike him. We seek to destroy him. But he came to bear that wounding, to bear that grief. We considered him stricken and afflicted, marred beyond the semblance of a man. What that means is unrecognizable as a human being. He became what we have become in our sin, unrecognizable as, as what God has designed. But here's the thing. Surely he has borne grief, but it's our grief. 
and He carried our sorrows. He was pierced, wounded. There's the word. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. He moved towards us as the healer, got down into our shoes, took a real body, a real human soul, real human grief. This is the God of the universe. And he comes down into the womb of a 16-year-old girl and is, and is born through a birth canal. The humility of it. And that wasn't low enough. He said, no, I've got to go lower still. came and he was a servant and it wasn't enough for him just to serve he said I gotta die no I gotta go lower still I gotta die the cursed death of a cro- on a cross lower still he goes down into hell into the grave and is buried and remains under the power of death for a time and this is his humiliation It's your humiliation, what you deserve. And he bears it so that by those wounds, he can heal you. So God steps in. He stepped in at the flood to wash things clean and to pave a way for grace. And he steps in in Christ to do the same, to wash away all the sin of this world, to wash away the sins of his people, to be plunged into death, so that he might come back up with his prize. You and me. So, point number two, and this be brief. What grieves God? What grieves God? A couple things in this passage. Kind of jumped the gun on one of them. Uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth... Uh, these warlords, these people, they're distorting God's image of marriage that he's designed, right? He's designed marriage to be one man, one woman for life. And now you've got these warlords who are, we learn later after the flood when they're still there, who are amassing for themselves these harems and mistreating their wives. And they're, and we were made also to be fruitful, to multiply, to create more human, be- more human beings to spread God's glory throughout the earth, and instead they're, spe- they're spreading bloodshed and evil. God is grieved when we twist and distort the image of what marriage and our sacrificial life for each other is supposed to look like. like God floods the earth because of the way we've distorted the image of marriage. It grieves God. It grieves God that the earth was corrupt in His sight. That it was corrupted. That they that instead of cultivating God's good gifts, we cultivated evil. That we were broken on the inside. It's not just that our actions are bad. He's grieved over what's going on in our hearts. The earth was filled with violence. And so all of these things motivate him to judge. His grief motivates him to judge. Now, somebody, when I asked the first question at the beginning, said this. What's the first emotion? What is the emotion that you associated with the flood before tonight? 
Anger. Read the passage again. Go home and read it tonight. Read it ten times. You won't find anger anywhere near it. When God floods the earth, He floods it with His tears. He's not acting in His anger when He floods the earth in judgment. He's acting in His grief. And that's an important distinction, right? We live in a world where people are twisting and distorting. We are living in a world where God has got to be massively grieved over the twisting and distorting of His image in marriage and male and female and all of that that's going on in our world. It is grievous to Him. And yes, it is angering when He sees that. But what what would we look like? If our first reaction to grievous sin was God's first reaction. But what would we look like if, if they saw our reaction, not, as, not, not first as anger. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Anger is too dangerous for us to handle. But if they saw our reaction as grief. And sorrow. I think... I think it would flood the world, not with devastating waters, but I think it would flood the world with grace. I think it would flood the world with repentance. I think it would flood the world with the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. So this is why we think about God first when we think about emotions and take our lead from him. Because we will become what we worship. So we worship a God who, yes, is angry at sin. Yes, has a very, has a dedication, dedication to justice. But before he was angry, he grieved. And before he comes in judgment, he let the judgment fall on him. So that he might save those who look to Jesus and take refuge in him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who grieves over sin, is broken over sin. You're not just, you're not an angry, abusive father. Your first response to our sin is not to clench your fist, but to begin to wipe your eyes for the tears. God, help us to see you this way. That even in your judgment, even when you, when you decreate the universe, even when you wash away those who have distorted your image, you do so motivated by your grief and your desire your desire to heal your wounded world. Help us to be good grievers. Through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen.